Hello and welcome back. You're listening to episode three of our podcast mini-series covering a serious and often undetected liver disease affecting nearly a quarter of the world's population, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, which we'll refer to as NAFLD. The more aggressive form of the disease is called non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, which we'll refer to as NASH. I'm your host, Dr. Amreen Danani, and I'm a hepatologist specializing in liver disease at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York City. Today, we have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Norman Sussman, an associate professor in surgery at Baylor College of Medicine, and he's the medical director of Project ECHO at Baylor St. Luke's Medical Center. Dr. Sussman, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Dr. Danani. It's very nice to be here. So I thought we'd start off by just letting you know we've done two series, two podcast series like this before, where we really just talked about the burden of NAFLD and NASH and the fact that it's a growing issue and problem both in the United States and worldwide. And we touched on the implications of having NAFLD. We also talked a little bit about simple diagnostic tests and how we can risk stratify someone with NASH. So what we're really hoping to achieve today from talking to you is once we've diagnosed people with NAFLD and NASH, what treatment options do people have? Because as you know, this is a big, messy disease. We really haven't made much headway in a systematic approach to this disease. To start off, if you don't mind, you want to tell me a little bit about, for instance, you have any initiatives that you've started already. It'd be great to hear what you already do. Thanks. So Baylor College of Medicine is in Houston, Texas. Texas has a very high prevalence of obesity. Uh, Houston has several times been ranked in the top one or two for average body mass index. It's a very common problem that we see. Uh, Baylor College of Medicine covers three hospitals in Houston, a county hospital called Bentob, the VA, a very large VA healthcare system, and uh, the private hospital called Baylor St. Luke's Medical Center. The faculty generally works at only one of those, but we speak to each other very frequently and have developed a combined program where we're trying to collect the same data on patients at all three centers so that we get a broad view of population health. That is, what do the people in the Harris County Hospital System experience? What do people at the VA experience? And what do people at the more private environment experience? We're a little bit slanted towards advanced liver disease because we have a liver transplant program. And so the university hospital tends to see more of the very advanced cases, but we remain very interested in the early phases of fatty liver disease or NAFLD, as you called it, or NAFLD, I should say, and saying, can we move this whole process upstream and get patients to understand that the choices they make now might prevent the end-stage liver disease that they may see as they get older. That's a perfect overview of your healthcare system. And you really emphasize a key point that depending on where you see these patients, not just within the country, but also in different healthcare models, you will see a different prevalence of disease, but also severity of disease. So it'll be very interesting to hear more about what you get out of some of the data that you're collecting. So kind of jumping to what we actually do with people with NAFLD or NASH. So once you've actually identified someone at risk for NAFLD or confirmed the diagnosis of NASH, and you know, as we know, we do that now with a liver biopsy as of today, and the standard of care really is to do a liver biopsy. What is your approach to treating NAFLD 
and I guess specifically NASH as well? The key elements are, number one, are we making the right diagnosis? So does this patient have NAFLD or NASH? And are they at risk? Is it possible they have another coexisting condition? The two that really come to mind are, are they drinking alcohol? So do they have a combination of non-alcoholic and alcoholic liver disease? And then do they have something else in the background, like a chronic hepatitis or some other condition? At first, we try to separate those out and say, how convinced am I that this is fatty liver disease? When patients come in for their first visit, if this appears to be, many times they come with a full evaluation from their referring doctor. So it looks as if this is the case. We discuss right at the beginning, here are changes you can make to your lifestyle including what is healthy food, what is unhealthy food, what is physical activity, what is too much, what is too little. And I emphasize that there's no one diet that works, but they need to find something that is healthier than the diet they're currently using. And I give them a period of time, somewhere between six to 12 weeks, to show that they can change that. If they come back and their liver tests are much better and they tell me I'm feeling better, all these symptoms I had are better, then I feel we're on the right track and I'm justified in not doing a liver biopsy. If their liver tests don't improve despite a lifestyle change, or if they just fail to do the lifestyle change, then I think we're obliged to do the biopsy because you have to say, I have to make sure this is actually the correct disease. I'm actually treating what I think I'm treating and that I'm not being misled by some other diagnosis that would be very important to your survival and to your long-term health. So you mentioned diet and you mentioned exercise. We live in a country where there's lots of different ethnic backgrounds. And one of the things that I find when I see people with non-alcoholic fatty liver diseases, by the time they've seen me at least, is they've tried every diet that's out there. Typically, people just want to know what to eat. So an approach that I found very effective, and I think it's a very similar approach to yours, of course, is, you know, learning what the person or the individual eats, because it may, if you're dealing with someone who's from a certain particular ethnic background, you cannot just counsel them on cutting out the bread, the pasta, and the rice, if those aren't things that they typically eat. So I find that approach and having a personalized approach to every patient, irrespective of disease burden or severity of NASH, does make a big, huge difference to sustainability and effectiveness of the recommendations we're making. And then the other thing you talked about exercise, is there a particular exercise that you recommend or you just tell them that they need to move? Is there a goal that you're asking them to hit? First of all, I think what you said about uh, ethnic background is really important. I always ask them what they're consuming and I specifically focus on Do they drink sweetened drinks? Like in this part of the country, sweet tea is a big popular drink. Are they drinking sodas? Are they drinking fruit juice? And try to show them where sugar is. So I spend quite a bit of time explaining, this is what I mean by sugar. These are simple carbohydrates. These are complex carbohydrates. This is where you may be getting them and try to focus them on where could you cut this? How could you reduce I'm not trying to get them to make ridiculous changes. I'm saying, I I really emphasize, I need you to make changes that you can live with for your whole life. Now, in terms of physical activity, many people do so little that it's sort of shocking. 
And so I ask them to just start out very simply. I say, I'd like you to do two kinds of activity. Number one is I really would like you to do some resistance training. And depending on the patient, that could be using light weights or moderate weights. It could be using uh, rubber bands, something if I'm worried that they might drop things, I tend to use something where I don't think they'll hurt themselves. And I say, this is a long process. Build it up. Start walking five minutes a day. Instead of parking at the front of the building, park a little further away and walk the extra 100 yards. So I try to get them to really take small steps, but to say, you will recognize each achievement yourself. And then when they come back, I ask them about them. So I try to celebrate their victories uh, when they come back. So I'm, I'm always trying to give them positive reinforcement. That's great. Another aspect of lifestyle that we know is very effective for treatment of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease is weight loss. So in addition to adopting a sustainable, healthy diet and getting some form of physical activity in to change your metabolism and how you deal with, you know, glucose control specifically, how do you avoid giving the blanket statement of you need to lose some weight? Because I found that talking to patients, they find that to be very uh, discouraging, ineffective, unless they're actually given some tangible goals. How do you advise people on weight loss? And if you can tell us a little bit more about the impact of weight loss on improvement of NAFLD. I can't even enumerate the number of people who say, my doctor told me to lose weight. And I say, did your doctor say how you would do that? And they said, no. So I said, well, I'm going to give you some very specific instructions, starting out with tell me what you eat. And then I say, here are things, here are ways you can cut these out. Again, I focus very much on the simple sugars, but then also depending on the patient and their ethnic background, some of the complex carbohydrates. So I, as an example, if I have an Asian patient who lives largely on rice, I have to say, how do I reduce the amount of rice? Saying don't eat rice any longer is not going to work. But I have to say, can you cut your rice with quinoa? Or can you add vegetables so that there's less rice and you're just getting a somewhat smaller carbohydrate load? I really try to taper it to the individual and I try to give them specific examples. And I, I ask them, what does this have in it? Tell, tell me about this drink. Is grape juice healthy? Uh, is orange juice healthy? Just so that they really start to think about the food that they eat. I think a lot of people just eat without really thinking. That's one of the problems. In terms of the weight loss goals, depending where they are and what they've done before and how diligently they've done it before, I would say generally when people have not been on a diet and they come in, if they pay attention to the diet, it's not unreasonable for them to lose 10 to 12 pounds in that 12-week period. That first weight loss is actually the easiest. And I always tell them, don't get discouraged if you hit a ceiling because there will be a temporary break somewhere where you will stop losing weight. Don't let that bother you. Stay healthy because you'll eventually get through that. That's great advice, you know, in terms of lifestyle, how do you achieve sustainable weight loss goals? And in particular, I like the fact that you comment and stress on the fact that sweetened beverages, high fructose corn syrup, especially uh, can be detrimental to fatty liver disease, but also very easy ways to cut calories 
So I wanted to switch to some things that are discussed in some of our society guidelines in terms of treatments and common scenarios that I do see in clinic. So the first one is the utility of vitamin E. I have many patients that come into clinic who have already been started on vitamin E. What are your thoughts on vitamin E? Is there any advice on how to use this or not to use this? I think that it's a controversial question. The study that demonstrated the utility of vitamin E was a very carefully done study by a very well-respected group of investigators, and they did show a benefit. Later, there were some criticisms about maybe there is a negative side to vitamin E and that you would end up balancing the good with the bad. I don't typically give vitamin E, although I'm well aware of that information. And the reason is I worry that we're very medication-oriented in the United States and perhaps in the world, and that people want a pill. And once they get that, they say, this is no longer my responsibility. The doctor is giving me a medication that's going to solve this problem. And so I generally do not use vitamin E, especially early on. If they come on vitamin E, I say, you can continue to take it. Frequently, they're not taking the natural form. They're taking a synthetic that is probably not as helpful as the drug that was studied in the, that was called the PIVINS trial. Uh, so the drug in the PIVINS trial was a natural vitamin E. The synthetic one may not be quite as effective. And so I tell them it's possible that you're getting some benefit. You may not be getting any benefit, but I really try to focus on their general health and less on tablets, although there are actually some medications that I think may help. That's great. So the other, you know, the other thing that I do know about vitamin E, you mentioned that, you know, all forms of vitamin E are not the same. And of course, the one that was looked at in the PIVINS trial is quite different in the natural form than what's available in drug stores or health stores. But the other also thing about vitamin E is there's some people who just respond better to vitamin E than others in terms of how they help with inflammation or oxidative stress, which is a huge pathway in the development of this disease. So it also doesn't work the same way in every individual. You mentioned that there are medicines that you would be in favor of. What type of medicines would those be? So my second favorite topic, what medications can we use? So I start out by looking at what medications is the patient taking that might actually be making it difficult for them to lose weight. Among those, one of them is beta blockers, which I see used less, but I think it slows metabolism down and may make it harder for people to lose weight. But the one in particular is insulin. And I really look at whether they're chasing a high blood sugar with insulin as opposed to managing, in other words, they take the sugar and then use the insulin to bring the blood pressure down if they didn't take the sugar in the first place, they might not need the insulin. So insulin is a major problem with weight gain. And then some of the newer medications for diabetes actually do help with weight loss. And one of them is actually approved for weight loss in itself. And those really may help um, the patient get their weight down and control their blood sugar. So I have a lot more confidence in those medications. And as we look to the future and what medications we'll be using for fatty liver, I think medications that have the dual effect of improving blood sugar and helping with weight loss will end up being the most effective. Thank you for that. 
what are your thoughts on statin therapy? A common scenario that I see in the clinic is I have patients who have been referred to me with slightly elevated liver enzymes, so an ALT or an ASC, and their primary care physician or even sometimes their subspecialists that are looking after them have stopped their statins. What are your thoughts or advice on statin therapy in fatty liver disease? Yeah, I think we're seeing the same patients because we have that same problem that frequently the primary care doctor has stopped their statin. I tell them, I think that's a big mistake. Statins really actually help people with liver disease. They have an anti-inflammatory effect. People generally do better with them. A very, very small number of people do have an adverse reaction to them where their liver tests go up. But in general, I consider them very safe and I strongly encourage them to speak to their primary care or sometimes I'll even call them and say, I think you should put the patient back on a statin. And I always put that in my notes to say statins generally are better for these patients. If they need a statin, it's a good choice. Great. Thank you for that. I'm pro-statins as well. So I'm not only advising the patient, but also reaching back to reaching the primary care physician to ensure that they you know, restart their statin therapy because not only does it have cardiovascular benefits, which is really important in this patient population. I mean, if you don't have advanced liver disease from non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, some of the leading causes of mortality are related to cardiovascular mortality. So I try to really emphasize that, but also there's some evidence to suggest that it maybe also helps with some of the scarring or the fibrosis that we see with this disease. I agree with that. You mentioned at present, we don't have any medical therapies that are specifically targeted to NAFLD or NASH. We do have some effective medical options to treat some of the comorbidities. So some diabetes medications, as you alluded to, and weight loss medications that we could use be proactive with therapy. But there's a lot of molecular targets out there being investigated right now in phase two and phase three trials. It's a common question. Do you think there's going to be one pill or one medicine that's going to work for everyone for fatty liver disease once approved? Do you think it's going to be a combination of pills? Do you think these medicines that are going to get approved are going to target the entire spectrum of NAFLD? Any insight into what you think might happen with drug development? I think that some very smart and diligent people are working on this, and a number of targets that look extremely promising are being investigated But a lot of the studies that looked promising at the beginning when the larger studies were done had very small or no effect. In other words, the placebo effect was about the same as the drug effect. And so it's very disappointing, but I think we're going to see that for a while. We do expect one drug on the market that showed reduced fibrosis, reduced scarring. And that was quite a surprise and very exciting. It's not a huge effect and it didn't affect everyone. So a percentage of patients seemed to get better, some didn't. And I think that tells us that there are going to be different types of people with different types of fatty liver disease. And we may have to refine our thinking and say this kind of drug works on this kind of patient, whether we'll identify those molecular targets ahead of time and say, this will be the drug that will work for this kind of patient, or whether it's going to be trial and error and say, I'm going to try you for six months and see if these parameters get better. And if they do, then we're going to continue. The cost of drug development means that those drugs are probably going to be very expensive. So whether anyone will actually pay for them in the long run, I think is going to be a a tricky question because 
the more effective they are, the better, the better the chance that people will pay for them. And then I think that all of the studies have shown that the people who lose weight do better than anyone else. And so drugs that affect weight loss, if they includes a drug that helps the patient lose weight, those I think are going to be the most effective combination. Great. Currently, some of the work you do is you're the medical director of the Project ECHO at the Baylor Healthcare System. And I know a big part of that is interaction and communication with primary care physicians. Have you used that model or using the ECHO model to educate primary care physicians for NAFLD or incorporated that into your program? Yes, I have. So we have a dedicated group of primary care providers, usually in community clinics that deal with generally under-resourced patients who really rely on them for all aspects of their healthcare. And some of these are really outstanding medical providers. They're advanced practice providers and physicians. Honestly, it's a pleasure working with them. They face this problem all the time. So we've had a number of discussions and I've given several lectures on how I see this, how we, my view of fatty liver and the drivers for it and the things that, the steps, the interventions that make a difference. I've told them about the uh, drugs that are currently in study, but I've advised them that we're not going to see any of them soon. And for that particular population, they're probably not going to be that relevant because many of those patients don't have the kind of insurance that's going to allow them to get those medications. So for people who do not have the resources, we really need a broad-based, simplified plan that says, here is how you get healthy, and here's how you solve this NAFLD problem, and it's simply good health. If I could say one other thing, I try to point out to people, mentioning someone's weight can be very tricky, and so it requires a really non-judgmental approach, similar to what we use for alcohol, where you say, I'm not really judging you. This isn't about how you look. This is really how your body works. And I can help you make your body work better, and you will feel better, and your complication rate will be much lower if you can take these steps. Thank you, Dr. Sussman. Any other last thoughts in terms of treatment or approach to the patient with NAFLD or NASH? that you have for the audience? I try to convey to the patients how passionate I am about this and how helping I'm them sure. get healthy is a real goal. It's not about writing another prescription or doing another operation, that their health is very important to me and to my partners and that we're, we want to stay engaged with them and help them reach this goal. You and I go to a lot of meetings where people say, oh, everyone knows no one goes on diet. That isn't my experience. I think if you spend the time and you say, here is why I'm doing this and here's what I would like and this is going to be my job, but this is going to be your job, then I think we have a chance of succeeding. I wouldn't say this works on every patient. Uh, there, are, there are patients who have not heard the message and they're a difficult problem. And for them, I try to get them to a diabetes doctor or someone who can use a medication or I send them to, um, I, I've even tried some um, appetite suppressants on those patients. But it's really, that's a bit of a failure because I feel as if I've not convinced them that their health is important to themselves and to me. 
Yeah, you know, you reiterate something uh, that I that I echo with and completely agree with. They just really want to feel like you are committed to them. Um, because as you know, by the time they see us, they've already heard about go lose some weight, you're overweight, you know, you're obese, you need to work on your diabetes. They've already heard all those things. One approach that I found effective is once you start putting the liver into the mix, as in the liver could be an organ that could be affected by all these medical comorbidities, such as, you know, type 2 diabetes, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, and even things like sleep apnea. It does bring in the disease to a different light in the patient's mind. But the other thing I found very effective is I actually tell patients to send me about a week to two weeks worth of a food diary. And I physically go through it with them in ways that they can cut out unnecessary calories. So for instance, they're drinking their calories. And I think that type of commitment makes a big difference. And, you know, majority of the time, I think if you connect at that level with a patient, it makes a big, big difference. And, you know, one of the things to reinforce at every visit, I think, is the effect of polypharmacy and addressing the whole issue with alcohol. And another aspect that we did touch on is also smoking. Smoking just in general can affect the liver specifically with liver fibrosis. So, you know, working very actively with smoking cessation programs, support groups to to help these patients through. So I really think that personal commitment makes a big difference to this patient population. Because you're right, it's lifestyle. If you don't change behavior, I can keep throwing things at you. I can keep writing prescriptions, but I'm really not changing your behavior that's driving some of this disease. Yeah. The other thing is, I no matter how small an improvement they've made, I always celebrate those improvements. Yeah. I never, I never say, I wanted you to lose 10 pounds and you only lost five. Yeah. Every bit matters. Exactly. <laughs> Every bit matters. So if you don't have any additional thoughts, I think we will conclude our session. I want to thank you for really joining us today and providing us with some insight into how you would manage this growing disease that we're seeing in the United States and worldwide. Just a reminder, this is part three of our podcast mini-series to increase education and awareness relating to NAFLD and NASH. Please join us next time to hear a NASH patient's perspective. This podcast series was developed by NASHNET, a global center of excellence network dedicated to improving NASH care delivery. Thank you again, and please tune in next time.